0: Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted, by visiting CoverageShingrix.com. Welcome to the March 7th, 2023 Annals and Internal Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to let you know about the new articles that you'll find if you go to annals.org. I know our listeners are very busy, so let's get started. Newer classes of diabetes drugs, glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists, known as GLP-1 receptor agonists, and sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors, known as SGLT2 inhibitors, have been the focus of much recent research that suggests that cardiovascular and renal benefits occur when these drugs are appropriately incorporated into the care of patients with type 2 diabetes. The 2022 Consensus Report from the American Diabetes Association and European Association for the Study of Diabetes recommend using GLP-1 receptor agonists among persons with type 2 diabetes who have established or at high risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and using SGLT-2 inhibitors among those with type 2 diabetes who have established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, or heart failure or at high risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Clinical studies have shown that both GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT-2 inhibitors yield additional clinical benefits compared with older treatments in reducing body weight and progression of cardiovascular disease and chronic kidney disease. Researchers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Emory University conducted an analysis of 1,330 non-pregnant adults aged 20 years or older who participated in the NHANES survey and had type 2 diabetes. Based on their analysis, the authors estimate that 82.3% of, or 22.4 million American adults with type 2 diabetes per year would meet recommended criteria to use the two newer medications. However, only 1 in 10 of them used either of these medications between 2017 and 2020, a period when these two medications were not recommended as first-line therapy to many patients who are now eligible in the 2022 guidelines. These medications have substantially higher costs than current first-line medications, and current costs would have to decrease by 70% for these to be cost-effective as first-line agents. Next is a new policy paper from the American College of Physicians that advocates for patients to be able to access comprehensive reproductive health services, including abortion, without undue government interference. The policy brief details new recommendations to protect patient access to care through the freedom to travel to seek medical care and ability to receive prescription medication in the mail or via other shipping and delivery services, and opposes efforts to criminalize the practice of medicine and restrict access to care. ACP's recommendations oppose government restrictions that would erode equitable access to reproductive health care services, including family planning, sexual health information, the full range of medically accepted forms of contraception, and abortion. ACP also opposes criminal or civil penalties for providing or otherwise facilitating clinically appropriate health care services that meet standard of care. The recommendations specifically denounce regulations that allow private citizens to have the ability to enforce state laws and the use of personal health information to prosecute or penalize individuals who are seeking reproductive health care. Finally, ACP affirms that individuals should have access to high-quality health care, regardless of where they live, including the ability to have legally prescribed drugs shipped and delivered, and the freedom to travel across state or U.S. borders to access health care services. The ACP is particularly alarmed by restrictions on reproductive services that would subject physicians to stiff criminal penalties for providing or simply making a referral for abortion care. ACP stresses that patients need to know that their physicians can provide them with the medical care and advice that they need, while physicians need to be free to care for patients in accordance with their own clinical judgment and based on clinical evidence and the standard of care, without being threatened with punitive laws. These recommendations are an update and expansion of ACP's 2018 paper, Women's Health Policy in the United States, that was published in Annals. Next is a cohort study of persons with incidental pituitary microadenomas that found that approximately two-thirds of microadenomas remained unchanged or decreased in size over time. These findings suggest that less frequent pituitary MRI surveillance for patients with incidental pituitary microadenomas is probably safe. Incidental pituitary lesions are common, and their estimated prevalence is 10 to 38.5% in radiological studies. With increased use of brain imaging techniques, more pituitary lesions have been identified, including asymptomatic solid or cystic lesions called incidentalomas. These lesions are categorized as macro versus microadenomas. Most are microadenomas. However, how frequently these incidental lesions should be monitored by serial pituitary MRI remains unclear. Researchers from Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School conducted a cohort study of 177 persons with pituitary microadenomas who received more than one MRI over time. The authors report that 78 patients experienced no change in the size of the microadenoma over time, 49 experienced an increase in size, 34 experienced a decrease in size, and 16 experienced an increase and then a decrease in size. The authors report that among the 28% of microadenomas that increased in size, the maximal size increase was 6 millimeters. They add that their findings suggest that although a subgroup of patients displayed an increase in tumor size over the study period, the tumor growth rates were slow and the increases in size were very limited. On August 25, 2022, the U.S. White House Office of Science and Technology, known as OSTP, directed all federal agencies to develop or update their policies to ensure that peer-reviewed publications resulting from federal funds are freely available on the day of publication in a public repository and that the underlying data also be made freely available. The OSTP action intends to stimulate innovation, restore faith in science, and renew commitment to open science. The authors of a new commentary argue that data sharing, has greater potential to spur innovation than the sharing of publications. Appropriate sharing of data is challenging and complex, however, yet the OSTP announcement provided limited details regarding data sharing. The authors write about the detail they believe is required for adequate and responsible sharing of data from U.S. government-funded research. Current endoscopic methods in the control of acute non-variceal bleeding carry a small but significant failure rate. The role of over-the-scope clips as the initial intervention has not been defined. Next is a report of a randomized trial that attempts to define it. Researchers randomized 190 adults with active bleeding or a non-bleeding visible vessel from a non-variceal cause on upper gastrointestinal endoscopy to over-the-scope clips or standard hemostatic treatment. The primary outcome was control of bleeding within 30 days. Compared to the standard treatment, the -the over-the-scope clip group had better 30-day control of bleeding and less failure to control bleeding at first endoscopy. The authors of an accompanying editorial believe that endoscopists should get trained in using over-the-scope clips because of the applicability of this method not only for bleeding but for other indications. However, they say that while over-the-scope clips are indicated in patients having failed an initial standard endoscopic hemostatic procedure for non-variceal upper GI bleeding due to continued or recurrent hemorrhage, they remain uncertain about its routine use as the primary modality. They think that such an approach should be considered for lesions at high risk of failure with standard treatments, such as in patients bleeding from ulcers exceeding 2 centimeters in size or located high in the gastric lesser curvature or posterior duodenal bulb. Non-tuberculosis mycobacteria, such as Mycobacterium abscessus, are water-avid pathogens associated with nosocomial infections. The next article is the description of the medical detective work that identified the source of a cluster of Mycobacterium abscessus infections in four cardiac surgery patients at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. The authors sought commonalities between cases, cultured potential sources, and sequenced patient and environmental specimens to identify the potential source of the infections. Patients were admitted during different time periods to different rooms, but to the same hospital floor. There were no common operating rooms, ventilators, heater cooler devices, or dialysis machines. Environmental cultures were notable for heavy mycobacterial growth in ice and water machines on the cluster unit, but little or no growth from ice and water machines in the hospitals two other inpatient towers, nor from the shower and sink faucet water in any of the hospitals three inpatient towers. Whole genome sequencing confirmed the presence of a genetically identical element in ice and water machines and patient specimens. Investigation of the plumbing system revealed a commercial water purifier with charcoal filters and an ultraviolet irradiation unit leading to the ice and water machines in the cluster tower, but not in the hospital's other inpatient towers. Chlorine levels in municipal source water were normal but undetectable downstream from the purification unit. There were no further cases after shifting high-risk patients to sterile and distilled water, intensifying ice and water machine maintenance and decommissioning the commercial purification system. This experience demonstrates how well-intentioned efforts to modify water management systems may inadvertently increase infection risk. National guidelines vary in how to consider health status to determine candidates for lung cancer screening. While lung cancer screening is underutilized overall, patients who are older and or in poorer health seem to be more likely to undergo lung cancer screening The authors of a new commentary note that research is needed to test the ideal health metric to provide the greatest net benefit and ensure equitable screening access in diverse real-world populations. Until then, they propose that clinicians prioritize an assessment of health along with their assessment of lung cancer risk using patient self-rated health and ability to climb stairs as an efficient and evidence-based step to identify patients who are likely healthy enough to benefit from lung cancer screening pending further evidence. Also new this week are the latest ACP Journal Club commentaries. Go to annals.org to read brief commentaries on articles selected from over 120 journals by your colleagues because they are of high methodologic quality and high clinical relevance. That's all for this podcast. I hope you'll go to annals.org to read some of the new articles I've mentioned, and I also hope you'll return in two weeks for the next podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted by visiting CoverageShingrix.com.